It is August 7th, 1959, a little after 1 a.m., and Roseburg, Oregon is about to explode. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Tank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. This week, we examine the 1959 explosion in downtown Roseburg. When a great orange ball of fire transformed the heart of the business district into a page from Dante's Inferno, it was a story of stark terror. A story of almost impossible escape from death. A story of courage, some futile, but nonetheless heroic. A story of firemen and policemen who ordered others to flee the danger zone, but remained themselves to stick with the job. Some died at their posts. The Oregonian, August 8th, 1959. Early in the morning of August 7th, 1959, the Roseburg Fire Department received a call that there was a small fire at the Gerritsen Building Supply Company, where, disturbingly, barrels of paint thinner were stored en masse. Some trash cans outside the building were reported to be on fire. The fire engine and crew quickly responded. Unknown to the first responders, however, there was a truck parked just a few feet away from the building, loaded with two tons of dynamite and four and a half tons of Carprel, a trade name for a mixture of ammonium nitrate and diesel oil, a potent explosive cocktail. And a big one at that. The April 1995 bombing that took down the Alfred Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City contained no dynamite, and just under three tons of this explosive ammonium nitrate. One and a half tons less than were sitting in a truck by a raging fire quickly getting out of hand. A truck packed full of explosives parked next to a building full of paint thinner. Add heat? Add flame? Well, ass kickers, here we go. Eyewitness and Roseburg City policeman Sam Gosso recounted that he no sooner stepped out of the car than I heard someone holler, Get the hell out of there! That dynamite is gonna blow! The next thing I know, 
I came to about a hundred feet away. The blast had hurled me and the police car against a wall. It looked like an A-bomb. There was a towering ball of flames as high as I could see. The blast was so powerful that it lifted seven boxcars off their tracks. Thirty blocks had been damaged, with eight blocks being totally destroyed. The Coca-Cola bottling plant and Central Junior High School were basically destroyed, in addition to many other establishments. 350 other businesses were damaged. The blast left a hole 12 foot deep and 52 feet in diameter in the concrete around the truck. Minor damage was reported in a one-mile radius. Windows were broken up to nine miles away. Some who saw the mushroom cloud at an estimated height of 300 feet figured that it was an attack from the Soviet Union. Roseburg resident Fred Siles was walking about three blocks away from Ground Zero when the load exploded. He was near an automobile agency and was blown through the windows and flew for about 50 feet into the facility. His son Jimmy was apparently not so lucky. An article the day after the blast noted that Jimmy was near death with a finger-sized piece of steel in his head. There may have been some confusion around the Siles men, for another article from the next day identifies the injured as Fred Siles in a Eugene hospital, recovering from having a three-and-a-half-inch steel bolt removed from the base of his skull. Nonetheless, this example demonstrates the force of the blast, as well as the very real pain felt by Roseburg residents such as the Siles family. One Mrs. Tandy claimed that only a miracle saved her life. She reported that felled power lines surrounded her parked car while she was inside, and that they sparked for several minutes on the ground around her vehicle. Gerald Wallace, an insurance salesman from Eugene, was blown through his room and into his hotel's hallway by the blast. We can only hope that he insured himself against giant fucking explosions. Cause I'm TNT, I'm dynamite. TNT, and I will not fight. TNT, I'm a power load. TNT, watch me explode. I'm sure, dear ass kicker, you are asking yourself, 
Why in the hell did this happen? For some insight, let's hear from Kick-Ass Oregon History's ribald resident historian, Doug Kank Crispin. George B. Rutherford, 47, of Chehalis, Washington, was the driver of the explosive-filled truck. Tired, he had pulled into town too late to deliver to the warehouse he was going to at the outskirts of Roseburg. He decided to rest until it opened the next morning and took a room at the Umpqua Hotel. He'd apparently asked the watchman if it was fine to park the load next to the supply building, and the guard said, sure. Rutherford was restless, and not being able to sleep, he got up and walked the three blocks from the hotel to the truck. He'd claimed that he was concerned about the load and said that he had checked in on it at 11 p.m., and then everything was fine. After he got back to his room, George Rutherford fell asleep and was awakened at about 1 a.m. to the sound of fire alarms. Looking outside and seeing the flames near to where he had parked the truck, he threw on his clothes and ran like a bat out of hell towards the inferno to move his truck away. He had almost made it to the truck when he was blown off his feet by the explosion. He was injured, and while being treated at the hospital in a state of shock, he was quoted as crying out, Let me go. Let me go. I've got to go down there and see how many people I've killed. Many injured in the explosion had been drawn by a curiosity in the initial fire and sirens and had come to the scene to witness the incident. One can only imagine the additional carnage if the blast had happened at, say, 3.30 in the afternoon as opposed to 1 in the morning. Alvin Kuykendall's wife and two daughters were watching the fire from the window in their home. As he was walking towards them, the explosives set off and destroyed their home. Alvin was thrown across the room and into the bathtub, half-blind, pulling burning timbers off his chest. He managed to claw through the wreckage to his family and got them to the hospital, where his four-year-old daughter Virginia died. Mrs. Kuykendall succumbed to her wounds and died almost a week later. His sole surviving daughter, Janet, needed 1,800 stitches to close the gashes the blast had caused her. The blast has been considered one of the greatest disasters in Oregon history, and contemporary accounts compare it in gravity to the poisoning of the patients at the Oregon State Hospital for the Insane in November of 1942. In that incident, 47 patients died and hundreds others were stricken violently ill when a cook swapped powdered milk for roach poison when preparing the scrambled eggs. We detail that tragic incident in an upcoming Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast. Now, the Roseburg explosion resulted in over 100 people being treated at local hospitals, including Mercy Hospital, which itself was damaged in the blast, losing its operating room and some patient rooms. The heat had been so hot that trees and shrubs outside the hospital were ignited. Amazingly, only 14 people died from the blast. 
Even those not directly affected by the blast were impacted. The chief of the Roseburg Fire Department, Dutch Mills, heard the blast and called the station to find out what was going on. When he heard the immensity of the damage, he instantly was incapacitated by a heart attack. Assistant Fire Chief Roy McFarland was fighting the fire at the supply house and was probably killed instantly in the truck's blast. Despite the rapid decapitation of the emergency response leadership, the citizens of Roseburg were able to rally and face this disaster head on. One fellow financially affected by the blast was the jeweler Jack West. His jewelry shop was in the Umpqua Hotel, and it was so damaged by the blast that the windows and display cases were blown apart. Reporters from the Oregonian dispatched to the scene found Mr. West in the early morning light, down on his hands and knees, picking uncut diamonds out of the windows of broken glass in his shop. By 3 p.m. that day, bulldozers had already begun working away at clearing the wreckage out of the streets, at least, and companies B, C, and D of the Oregon National Guard had been deployed. Roseburg's News Review reported that the day after the blast, the area smelled of burning flesh. The blast was so powerful that it became something of a case study for those interested in seeing how a 1950s small-town American community would fare from a Soviet nuclear bomb or missile attack. Walter Reed Hospital and the National Office of Civil Defense sent teams to survey the damage and control measures that were being implemented to manage the emergency. Half a dozen Oregon civil defense groups from municipalities across the state came to study the scene as well. The experts determined that the blast was quite similar to the effects of a medium-sized bomb filled with conventional explosives. Authorities determined that a detailed report on the incident would resemble a Bible for use by various agencies in case of enemy attack or other emergency. Truck driver George Rutherford eventually took much of the blame for the incident. He never did jail time, nor was he required to pay in lawsuits that were directed at him. In a poor example of the supportive leadership, Rutherford's own boss, Robert Clinton of the Pacific Powder Company, told a federal and state inquiry panel that the explosion resulted from, quote, failure in judgment of the man, end quote. His own fucking boss. But one intriguing selection from an article of the disaster noted that there were rumors that the early morning fire was deliberately set. An interesting tidbit worthy of future research and investigation. Throughout his life, Rutherford rarely spoke of the event, but he did leave an interesting and noteworthy anecdote about the incident behind with his family. He said that when he was running toward the truck, about a block away, a pair of powerful hands lifted him up into the air by his shoulders, and as the blast hit, these hands carried him through the air and set him down two blocks away in front of the Umpqua Hotel. Rutherford claims that it was an angel that picked him up and carried him away and placed him on the steps of his hotel. A modest memorial to the blast has been placed in downtown Roseburg. It is around the corner from the Roseburg Visitor Center, near the intersection of Oak and Washington. 
If you're driving by, you could easily miss it, behind some ever-present shrubs. But take a moment to get out of your car and investigate. There you will find a 1,000-pound river rock with a simple plaque affixed that reads, This is the site of the explosion which occurred in the early hours of August 7, 1959, resulting in 14 deaths and injuring 57 persons. A fire in a lumber yard detonated a truck loaded with explosives and caused property losses estimated at more than $12 million. A conventional yet fitting tribute to a kick-ass Oregon town that met earth-shattering, devastating destruction head-on and fucking won. A self-guided walking tour of the blast area is available from the Roseburg Visitors Center website. We'll link to it at orhistory.com. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I'd like to welcome you to our first ever Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast. Well, kinda. It's actually our first to be broadcast on X-Ray Radio. So Andy and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to revisit what we've done and what we've learned over the last three years. Now, this is the section of the podcast that we call the Historian Sermon. And in this section, I tend to analyze and interpret the history presented and let you know my take on the story, a theme to consider, why this stuff is important to revisit, maybe some lessons on what we might apply to today, or maybe just, that was a kick-ass story, huh? And the Roseburg Blast was a natural choice for our first kick-ass Oregon history broadcast. Andy and I first heard the story when we were working at Multnomah County Outdoor School at Camp Howard. So for like 20 weeks a year, we were deep in the woods, and we worked with this real old-school cat named Rudy Bohm, a serious student of Oregon history. And I don't know how it popped into conversation, but every time he could, Rudy would grab you by the arm and say, You know about the day Roseburg exploded, right? And you'd just kind of say, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like this old man yarn. But then later on, I learned, holy shit, Rudy was right. Roseburg did actually blow up because crazy stories about Oregon's past are so much better when they're true. Because really, that's what we're all about at ORHistory.com, bringing you the straight shit on Oregon's past, telling true stories about the Beaver State through these little broadcasts that will emerge once a week. And hopefully we can help in getting you out of your easy chair and into these locations in Oregon that we explore. Because whether you come to one of our live shows or on our bus tours or just head off on your own, that's really what we want you to do. Get deep up into our state. Learn a little. Have some fun. Give a shit. And hopefully make some kick-ass Oregon history all your own. Happiness. Oh, 
Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's episode was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. And we're on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. history.com